You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, 2 Corinthians 8 is where you need to be. So it's going to really serve you to make sure you have a Bible open on your lap um, to where you can look down and refer to it. Um, last week I was out. Um, I preached for a, a friend of mine down in uh, the Houston area who was out on a sabbatical. And every time I preach at a different place, it just produces in me this thing of, oh man, I just think I like preaching to our people so much better and the people that God has entrusted to me. And so all that to say, I really did miss you last week. And so also wanted to to just give a a quick thanks to Travis. I'm not sure if he's in here right now, uh, but if you're here last week, you heard from Travis Wyckoff, who's on staff with us and um, did a great job last week. And sermon prep is really, really hard work as Travis found out last week. And uh, so man, I, I want to say thanks to him. I think he's probably over in the preschool area right now, but for the hours he put in to serve you. And so thanks to Travis. Okay, so here's where we are. Um, if you've stumbled in, uh, you have found yourself in the middle of a series called Gospel, Greed, and Generosity. And this is like part 94 of it. And so uh, uh, actually, I think it's like part eight. But we're in the second um, sort of a, of a part here, kind of in the middle of this series, where we're working through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And really, these chapters deal with generosity and giving. Now, and I said this a couple of weeks ago, that that I've been in ministry circles now for 10, 11 years, something like that. Plenty long enough to know that talk about giving and generosity typically doesn't go all that well. And so uh, plenty long enough to know that, that for a lot of people, when they walk in the room and hear that, there's automatically something that is stirred up in them where they're agitated, maybe even a little bit angry. And so I think it just begs the question, in light of me knowing that, I know that that's in this room, and you know, anytime we talk about this issue, it's going to produce that. Why is it that we would choose to talk about this, for, really for an extended season, but specifically giving in generosity for these two weeks, two Sundays ago and today? What, why is it that we would choose to do that? And I want to give you a similar answer that I gave two weeks ago. And here was the answer that, that, that we said, that the reason that we feel like it's imperative that we talk about money and possessions, giving and generosity... Is because in our culture specifically, in some cultures this might not be as true, but in our culture specifically, how we deal with money and possessions, and we'll just, we'll just say specifically today, giving and generosity, is one of the most reliable ways that you can determine if you are a fan of Jesus or a follower of Jesus. So money and possessions, giving and generosity, generosity specifically, is one of the most reliable ways you can determine if you're a fan or a follower. See, if we were in Somalia and just being in this room this morning worshiping Jesus might get you killed, we probably wouldn't be looking around thinking, man, I wonder who's fake and who's fans, who's fo- who, where are people in the room? If you're in the room in Somalia, you're probably for real. I mean, if your life's on the line and you're there, you're probably for real. But our, in our culture, we have virtually no sort of external things like that, that, that press a decision that, that can really uh, differentiate between who are the fans and the followers, those who really love Jesus and those who are just kind of on the peripheral edge, just kind of admiring Jesus. Like we have nothing that, that creates that sort of a response in our culture that, that really distinguishes who are those who, who, like their life hinges on this being true. Like if, if this isn't true, like Paul would say in 1 Corinthians, they are above all people to be pitied. We have very few things that do that. But money and possessions in our culture is one of those. It's one of those. It's it's this reliable guide that can help you see in your own life and in your heart toward God, are you for real in this thing? Like, is this just something you do because it's a hobby that other people do? Or is this for real, like Jesus actually means something to you? 
See, so maybe you could think about it this way. Money and possessions, giving and generosity, this is really a discipleship issue. It's one of the best things I can present before you and then say, look at your heart now. And see, if, if maybe I could even say it, kind of jump on the other side of this. If I were just to say this, that if, if as a pastor, if I refuse to talk about this particular topic and this issue, I think I would actually be doing you a great disservice, right? And so in light of that, here's what I want to be. I want to be faithful to God, faithful to his word, and really faithful to you as we work through chapters like 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Fair enough? Okay, so here's the context of where we are, the context of these two chapters. If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the, the very end of 1 Corinthians, and you might even mark that because we're going to be back there here in a few minutes, but, but at the, fir- the first part of 1 Corinthians 16, the first two verses, um, Paul is setting up this idea that he is going to come back around and he is going to make a collection from the Corinthian church to help suffering saints, suffering Christians in Jerusalem. So he's, he's told them that at the end of 1 Corinthians. And now in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he's probably writing from Macedonia, probably Philippi. And, and he's writing ahead. He's about to come to the Corinthian church again. And, but before he gets there, he writes this letter. And in the middle of that letter, he's reminding them of this collection. And really these two chapters, the longest kind of condensed thing in the Bible about generosity and giving is written by Paul in an effort to stir up generosity in the Corinthian church. Okay, so this is the context. These two chapters are meant to stir up generosity. Okay, now in light of that, um, two weeks ago, we um, looked at the first first five of ten kind of Christian giving attributes. So we looked at the first five. I want to remind you of those first five. And then today we'll move on and cover the last five and uh, and wrap up these two chapters. So let's start in uh, verse one of chapter eight. Just kind of as a recap of where we were a couple of weeks ago. Um, Paul says this, chapter 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So essentially what, what Paul is doing here is he's using the Macedonian churches. Okay, now think about the words it uses to describe them. You're talking about severe affliction, extreme poverty. This is third world poverty we're talking about probably here. So we're talking about severe suffering, extreme poverty. And Paul is saying, now do you see how even in that they have been, I mean, they have overflowed in generosity. And he's using the Macedonian church almost as friendly competition. He's saying, look at them as a model for what generosity as a Christian looks like. Okay, now in light of that, he's going to give us a couple of things here to kind of outline some of the attributes of Christian giving. So starting in verse 3. First three words of verse 3. For they gave. Here's the first thing that could probably be said about Christian giving or generosity. Is Christians give. They give. This is who Christians are. For they gave should be an adequate summary statement of the life of virtually every Christian. For they gave. Like when somebody talks about you at your funeral someday, they should be able to say this is the three-word description. For they gave. This is who they were. They were generous people. Christians, okay, people who claim to know generous or know Jesus are not necessarily generous people. People who claim to know Jesus aren't necessarily generous. But people who do know Jesus, they are generous. Christians give. Generosity is who they are. It's in their makeup. Now, I'm not saying that you're saved by generosity. I'm saying that when you're saved, it's never without generosity. 
So generosity is, is what Christians do. This is a part of who we are. I, people who have been met by the grace of God are generous people. For, for a Christian, it's the reflexive response of our heart that has been saturated with the grace of God. It's the reflexive response of a person that's been redeemed by God. Christians are givers. They're generous people. Okay, this is who we are. Now, you see this in um, chapter 9 as well. If you look over at chapter 9, verse 11, you'll see Paul reiterate a similar point. Like, look at what he says here in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 11. He says, you will be enriched in every way. Now, just stop there. You will be enriched in every way. Part of that is, is financial. It, it's got a whole lot of other ways you could talk about being enriched by God. But part of that is, is money and possessions. You're going to be enriched in every way. Now, the question is why? Why would God enrich a person specifically with money and possessions? Is that so we can pad our life with all sorts of comforts? Is that the reason? Okay, look at what the verse goes on to say. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 11. You will be enriched in every way. Why is that? To be generous in every way. I mean, he's just reiterating that Christians are generous people for they gave adequate summary statement should be for every one of us in the room that we are giving people. Now, here's what that requires from everyone in the room. It requires us all to make the hard decisions of how to keep our life below the level of what God has entrusted to us. In other words, if God has entrusted to you this amount of money, whatever that is, you've got to make the hard decisions to live underneath it so you can be generous. I think this is the summary of what he's saying here, that God has entrusted to you resources. Why has he done that? So that you and I and our church family will be generous people for for Christians give. Christians are givers. Here's the second one we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Is Christians don't just give, but Christians give sacrificially. Look at verse three again. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify and beyond their means of their own accord. One of the biggest myths Um, as it relates to giving in kind of church world, and I think this is a lot of us in the room, is if if I were to ask you the question, what does God want for you as far as giving goes? Like, what is it that God would be after? I think the predominant way people respond to that question is 10%. That God wants 10%. And can I just tell you, that is, God is not caught up in a percent. The New Testament level or standard of giving has nothing to do with the percent. It has everything to do with sacrifice. Everything. So I don't want to abolish like 10% out of your mind. I think it can be great training wheels. We said this a couple of weeks ago, as you get on the bike of sacrifice, 10% can be great training wheels, but God is not caught up in a percent. He is caught up in sacrifice. Like that's what he wants. So maybe I could say it this way. God is not concerned about everyone in the room giving equally, the equal amount. He is concerned about everyone in the room giving an equal sacrifice. That's the standard in the New Testament. See, maybe you could think about it this way. There's three levels of giving. You can give below your means, which is what a lot of Christians do. You can give according to your means, which a few Christians do. Or you can give beyond your means, like the Macedonian church, which is sacrificial giving, which is what God wants every Christian to do. It's where he's trying to move all of us in the room, is that we're actually giving beyond our means, sacrificially. Now, here's what sacrificially means. It means that you're giving to the point where it would cut deeply into your daily life. That's sacrificial giving. That it cuts deeply into daily living for you. That sometimes it's past the point of all the numbers adding up and making sense. 
Like sacrificial giving means that it would require you to actually have faith in God to give it. It would actually require dependence upon God as you give it. That's sacrificial giving. And so I don't know what that means for you. I don't know, I'm, even for me, we're wrestling through it hard right now. But, but here's what we all need to know. This is where God is moving all of us. As a church, this is where he's moving us. As individual families and individual people in the church, this is where he's taking us. Sacrificial giving. Giving in such a way that it cuts deeply into our daily life. Number three, Christians give passionately. Verse four, I think is the most amazing um, verse in these two chapters, or one of the most amazing verses. Verse four, it says this, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Begging us earnestly. The Mas- okay, this is the Macedonian churches. Severe affliction, extreme poverty. And their posture towards Paul is, Paul, God, please don't let us miss this. Like we actually want to give in big ways that would cut deeply into our life. Like they are begging God and Paul to be a part of meeting the, this particular need. Okay, now think about, I mean, I think a lot of us just need this correction. See, Paul isn't twisting their arm here. Paul isn't taking them out back and beating them up to try to get their money from them. The posture of these people's heart is, we want to be a part of what God is doing. We want that. You don't have to, you don't have to like pry on us. We are begging you to let us be a part. That's the posture of their heart towards Paul and towards God as it relates to their money and possessions. Now, how many of us need that corrective? I think a lot of us need correction in this area. See, I I know that when people heard uh, generosity is what we're talking about this morning, when you walked in, it produced in some of us a great, here we go. And it produced in the Macedonians a great, I am so thankful this is what we get to talk about. I mean, that's a posture shift for us. I think a lot of us need. It's it's been ironic for me. This has been in 11 years of of doing ministry stuff now, 10, 11 years. Over those 10 or 11 years, I've had, um, I think, three people come up to me and say, hey, um, we feel like God has, has given us money and possessions. And we want to make sure that we are leveraging those for good things. And so if you come across things that you think, you, you know, you should talk to me about giving toward, I want you to do that. I want you to know I want that. Three in like 11 years, that's happened. And I, I, I'm not saying you need to tell me that, but I'm saying for all of us, the posture of our heart should be that, shouldn't it? That God, you just have to say the word and I want you to know that I want to do this. God, you just have to say the word and God, I want you to know my posture towards you is I'm begging you to let me be a part. That should be the posture of every one of us in the room that they gave passionately. Number four, Christians give deliberately. In verse four, it says um, they knew exactly what their money was going for, taking part in the relief of the saints. So it's not random. It's not just in throwing money out the window. It's giving specifically, deliberately. Here's what Paul did. He came to them and said, here is something that I think you should give to. They bought in and believed in it and they gave sacrificially toward it. And we said this a couple of weeks ago, but I think every pastor has a Paul-like function. That one of his jobs is to stand before his people and say, this is what God is leading us toward. And I think that you should believe in this and buy into this and give sacrificially toward that. This is one of the ways that pastors serve people. This is one of the ways Paul served the Macedonian churches and the Corinthian church. And we talked about this extensively a couple of weeks ago, that we have some really big things that we feel like God has called us toward. Over the next 10 years, we would love to see 50 churches planted. That's going to take money. 
We would love to see 100 families adopt out of Stonegate. That's going to require money. We have facility issues that we've got to to figure out here for long term how we're going to reach Midlothian. And so we've got some really compelling things out there that I, I want you to hear this again. I think every one of us should be sacrificially giving toward. I think it's worthy for every one of us in the room if you're a Stonegate kind of a part of our church family here. But I just want you to hear this. It's going to require every one of us to be Macedonian crazy with their money. Like that, this sort of a posture before God and needs in the world. This is going to require that from every one of us. If we're, going to, if we're actually going to see those things accomplished, it's going to require you, it's going to require me, every one of us in the room to have that posture towards things. And then lastly, number five. Christian giving is an act of worship. Look at verse five. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So we said this a couple of weeks ago that that giving is not primarily an issue of money. Giving is primarily like a spiritual issue. It has nothing to do with money. It has everything to do with does God have all of you? See, this is worship. Worship is God. You have all of me every second, every moment of every day. See, that's the question. Does God have all of you? And when God has all of you, do you know what begins to happen? Generosity toward the causes and concerns of God begins to naturally flow from you. And I've said this repeatedly over this series. I just want to remind you of it one more time. That we are not doing this series because we want things from you. We are doing this set of sermons because we want things for you, namely for God to have all of you. That's why we're doing it. This is our hope for you, is that all of your life would be one of worship before God. And when that happens, generosity naturally begins to flow from us. Okay, so that was all recap. Now we're going to run through the the last five here. So to start these last five, um, we're actually going to have to go back to 1 Corinthians 16, first two verses. So go ahead and flip back and... uh, And I want you to see one thing out of these two verses that I think is going to be really helpful for us. 1 Corinthians 16. This will also be up on the screen for you if you have a hard time finding it. So here's what we're going to see here. Is that Christians give regularly. They give on a regular basis. Okay, so here's what we're going to see. 1 Corinthians 16. Now concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are also to do... On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So there will be no collecting when I come. Here's what I think Paul is getting at here. That all of your giving cannot be reactionary. Like all of your giving cannot be like in the moment, at the end of a service, God just doing something in that moment. Some of it can, and there should be reactionary giving by all of us. But the brunt of your giving is not to be reactionary, but regular. The brunt of your giving is to be prayerfully planned. God, what? It's getting before God with this question. In light of what you have entrusted to me, now what would you want me to do in 2012? What would you like for me to do in the last five months of the year? What would you like for me to do in this month? It's prayerfully planned before God. Where you're getting before God and saying, God, all of this is yours. The question is, what do you want me to give right now, this season, this month, this year? It's regular. And look at what he says here. He he uses things like set it aside. That means that you've actually got to be thinking about this. That that's a regular thing that you would do. Setting it aside so that you can give it. So you're not surprised. It's regular giving. The, The Christian giving should be regular giving. Okay, now I think this is also a good correction for a lot of us in the room. 
Um, I, I think just generally speaking, how almost every one of us give goes like this. Um, well, I'm here today. Oh, darn, I better do something. So here we, here we go. It's not prayerfully planned. And because it's not prayerfully planned, here's what happens. Almost all of us overestimate what we give in a typical year. Almost all of us do that because it's not prayerfully planned. So we just lose track of it. And we're surprised when we see what we've given. So I, I want to just give you this homework this week. You need to make sure you jump on the city. You can pull up your giving stuff there. All of your giving for this year to Stonegate can be pulled up there. That should not be a surprise to you. It should not be. And, and I, I think that for most of us, if we were to pull that up today and look at it, it would be a surprise for nine out of 10 people in the room. And it shouldn't be a surprise. You need to, you need to prayerfully plan that and do that regular. So there's no surprises when you look at that. Okay, so, so here's the reason for that. Significant giving never ha- happens in a reactionary way. Significant giving is always the result of systematic or regular giving. Those two things always work together. You prayerfully planning how much you're going to give before God. You're you asking God, what, do you, what would be appropriate right now? What are you leading us to do here? And you being willing to obey regardless of what he says. And then you planning that out and being regular in that. So Christian giving is regular giving. And just one more thing there, as you see this in, in 1 Corinthians 16. He says, at the first of the week and as you may prosper. So I think you could talk about this in terms of first fruits. That God is not asking you to go at the bottom of the, bar, uh, you know, the, bottom of the barrel to figure out what's left. God is saying, from, from what I give you, you give from the top, not the bottom. It, it comes from the top of the stack, not the bottom of the stack. In other words, it's not just what you've got left over. It's prayerfully planned at the beginning of the month in light of what God has entrusted to you. See, if, if we, we will always spend our way out of giving. You know that, right? Well, all, all of us will do that. And, and so we've all got those things that, that we'll gladly spend money on if there's something left at the bottom. So God is saying it should be as you prosper at the first of the week. So Christian giving is regular giving. Number seven, Christians give excellently. Okay, we're back into 2 Corinthians 8. Okay, so look at verse 7. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 7. Look at what Paul says here. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So this act of grace is giving. He's saying, as a church, we could be known for a million different things. We could be known for decent preaching. We could be known for great worship. We could be known for good people. We could be known for great ministries. We could be known for a million different things. And he's, Paul is saying this, in light of you being known for whatever, you need to keep this central, that your church should be marked by generosity, that you should do this excellently. But it's not just you do excellent preaching, it's you do excellent generosity. It's not just you do excellent worship, it's you do excellent in generosity. It's not just you have great children's stuff going on, it's you be excellent. You do a great job in your generosity. On a personal level, it's saying that you should be marked by this. That it's not just that you're a good businessman, but you are incredible in your generosity. That you are excelling in your generosity. It's not just that you're a good mom or a good dad. Have a good marriage. It's that you're also excelling in this act of generosity. So he's saying that in light of all the different things that you could get preoccupied doing, this is, this is important. You need to make sure you're excelling in this. You need to prayerfully plan what it would look like for you to excel in this. 
Okay, now there's another thing going on when he calls this act of, he calls giving an act of grace. I think he's alluding to what he says in Romans 12, 7, when he calls giving, listen to this, giving is a spiritual gift. Okay, in Romans 12, 7, he, he's real clear that giving is a spiritual gift. So and I think he's alluding to that here in calling it an act of grace. Okay, now in light of that, listen to Randy Alcorn as he kind of ties these two um, places together in the Bible. He says, in Romans 12, 6 through 8, Paul lists seven spiritual gifts, including prophesying, serving, teaching, showing mercy, and giving. I'm convinced that of all these gifts, giving is the one least thought about and discussed. Least thought about and discussed. He goes on to say this. It's the gift that's buried. I, I think this is true. It's the gift that's buried deepest in the Western church. We, give, we regularly see the gift of teaching and how that looks, and we know exactly how that looks. We hear testimonies about miraculous healings, restored marriages, successful parenting, and nearly everything else but giving. We know about prayer warriors and Bible students, but rarely do we hear stories of people who give most of their incomes to the Lord. If it's all right to be aware of and follow the lead of prayer warriors, why not giving warriors? I think he's, he's just pointing this out, that there is a general disregard for this gift that God would give us, that this should be cultivated in you and in me. And I, I'm going to maybe even take this one step further and say this. I, I personally think it would be fair to say that for a lot of us in the room that are stuck spiritually, like we just can't seem to, to get down the road in, in spiritual growth, that one of the big contributing factors to that is our greediness. One of our big contributing factors is that we're not exercising and excelling in this act of giving and generosity, that we're stuck. So, so our giving exercises no faith. Our giving and generosity exercises no dependence upon God. And, and we're living our life as if we can make it all work. And financially, we're okay with that. And I think it's, it's caused some of us to be stuck. I think it would be God's will for you and I to figure out what it would look like to give in such a way that it would require us to depend on God. That it would remind us that everything is dependent upon God. So, so I think there's a, there's a definite link there. Uh, let me just leave this little section with maybe this question or, or this kind of thought. I, I think it would be appropriate for every one of us every year to be before God asking this question. What would it look like this year for me to excel in this act of, of grace, giving, and generosity for my family? And what would I want that to look like 10 years from now? And I think we all be on a trajectory of excelling in generosity and giving. So I just want to ask you, is that you? Is that how you think about these things? Right? Are, are you, before God, praying and pleading with God to show you what it would look like to excel in this act of grace? Okay, next one, number eight. Seven is, Christians give, seven is Christians give excellently. Number eight is Christians give cheerfully. Okay, now we're over into chapter nine, 2 Corinthians nine. Pick it up in verse six here. 2 Corinthians nine, verse six, Paul says this. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves, is pleased with a cheerful giver. A cheerful giver. I mean, does that describe you? I mean, is it a posture of, dang, we're talking about giving. Why did I come today? Or I am so thankful we're having this conversation. 
cheerful giver? That's the question. Okay, now this is a perfect segue from what Travis preached last week, dealing with the heart. External action versus the heart. See, God, let me say this clearly. God is not just concerned with any sort of obedience. He is concerned about a certain kind of obedience. Let me say it one more time. God is not concerned with any type of obedience, but a very certain kind of obedience. Namely, an obedience that is driven by right desires. Like the inside of you actually matches what the outside of you is doing. That's the sort of obedience he's looking for. See, if it was any sort of obedience, God would have just said this in 2 Corinthians 9. I love a giver. But he doesn't just say, I love a giver. He says, it's not just any obedience. It's a certain kind of obedience. I love a cheerful giver. That's the sort of giver I want. That's the sort of giver that I'm pleased with. Okay, now let me answer the question, why is that? Why is God pleased with a cheerful giver, not just any giver? Um, And I'm going to borrow an illustration from one of my favorite pastors. So imagine this scene. And I'm going to speak from the guy's perspective here. Imagine this scene. It's your 20th wedding anniversary. And you're the guy and you know this. You better not go home empty handed that day. I mean, if there's anything you better have learned in 20 years, you better show up with something when you, when you come home, right? And so it's five o'clock. You, you just left work and you're running home and you think, well, heck, what am I going to do? I'm going to stop by Brookshire's. I'm buying a dozen roses. And so you run in, you buy your dozen roses, you hit the house and uh, you walk to the door and you say, uh, Laura, or, you know, in your case, your wife. Um, yeah, <laughs> hopefully it's not Laura. Okay, good. Um, hey, it's, it's been 20 years. Um, I know I better not come to the, the door empty handed. And so, uh, I've got these flowers for you. I hope you enjoy them. Uh, wh- what's for dinner tonight? We, we are watching sports center tonight, right? Now, okay. If I come to the door and that's my posture, I'm going to do my duty because we've been married 20 years. Is, is any wife pleased with that? No. I mean, that, that's rhetorical. The answer is no. Every guy knows that, right? The answer is no. Okay, but imagine this scene. It's 20 years. You've been waiting for this day for a while. You've got your roses in hand. You leave the office and you go home. And when you, you, when you come through the door, you bust through the door. And, and your first words are, baby, where are you? Laura, it has been 20 years. And today marks one of the greatest mercies of God toward me in our marriage. And I want you to know that these roses are a pale picture of how much I appreciate you, how much I love you, that they do not adequately express how I feel about you. See, it's not just the duty, is it? It's the right desire that is behind the duty that matters. See, there's not a wife in the room that wouldn't love that. But see, duty and desire have to go together. God is not, he is not pleased by our begrudging submission to what he says. He is pleased by our glad submission to what he says. When we come to the door with duty and desire together, this is why he says, I love a cheerful giver. I lo- it pleases me. I love that when people do that with me. Now, okay, well, let me answer this question. Why is it that we should be cheerful in our giving? And that could literally be a whole sermon. Let me just give you three quick things. Why is it that we should be cheerful? Number one, is it glorifies God. Giving is a way for you to glorify God. You know, every time you give, this is what you're saying. That God is worth more than money. God is worth more than any of my possessions. God is worth more than my bank account. God is supremely valuable. 
See, giving actually glorifies God in that way. But giving is also a great benefit to you. We've talked about this extensively, that the Bible has a lot to say as far as offering warnings about money and possessions. That there are some serious pitfalls and serious dangers that money and possessions drag along behind them. This is why there's 2,350 verses in the Bible that deal with it. 15% of the words of Jesus offer these sort of warnings to us. I mean, the Bible is really serious about these warnings. But do you know what giving does? It's one way, there's other ways, but it's one way for you to counteract every potential pitfall of money and possessions. Every warning that the Bible would give about money and possessions in your life, seducing you away from God, giving will counteract those. Do you know that? This is why it's really good for you to give. You're reminding your heart that that God is good for you. That God is worth more than you than money. You're reminding your heart that, that your significance is not found in your money. That your, that your satisfaction and happiness is not found in your money. That your security is not found in your money. That all of those things are found in God. That your hope is in God. See, you're, you're giving, like every time you give, you're reminding your heart of that. It's good for you. And it's also really good for God's mission. Giving is good for God's mission. Now, I'm going to say something that I think um, it could ruffle a feather or two in the room. Some of you might disagree with it. Um, but I think if you disagree, it's going to be because you haven't been actively trying to move the mission of God down the road. Right? And so, so here's the statement. God's mission requires money. I don't know if that sounds like it's cheapening something to you or not, but it's true. If you want to see churches planted, you know what it's going to cost? Money. If you want to see unreached people groups reached with the gospel, you know what's going to require? Money. If you want to see people, like people who need help in our area, have their needs met, you know what's going to require? Money. If we want to see Stonegate be able to reach this area well, it's going to require money to do that. And that's okay. You know, I actually think God's designed it that way for a reason. That God wants it to create, to, to have money behind it. Because um, this is what he's talking about in Matthew 6, uh, 6, 21, when he says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. See, it doesn't, money, how you spend money doesn't just expose where your heart is. It directs your heart as to where it's going to go. So see, one of the reasons I think God wants mission and money to be linked together is because he wants your heart linked to mission. See, like when, when you're actively giving to the mission of God, do you know what your heart is going to start to do? love and care about the mission of God around the world. And you know why a lot of us really don't care about the mission of God? It's because we're not giving sacrificially toward it. See, where we give money to, it pulls our heart in that direction. It makes us love and care for those things. So if if you want tomorrow, if you want to care more about the mission of God than you do today, start giving toward the mission of God and you'll start caring more about it. See, God's mission requires money to get behind that and to fund. See, if we want to see all the things that God has set before Stonegate, if we want to see God do all that, do you know what it's going to require for every one of us in the room? Sacrificial giving. It's going to require for all of us in the room, from from you, from me. And I'm not going to ask you to do anything I won't do. I, I said this a couple of weeks ago that I'll promise to you to be at the tip of the spear in that. But it's going to require that from every one of us. And I think that's God's means for us. Maybe I could say it this way. Why is it that God distributes wealth unequally across the world? You know why he does that? So people who have wealth can actually be a part of giving it and meeting the needs of other people. That's why he does it. So it's, it's good for you. See, when you keep your, your stuff all for you, kind of hoard it, put your hands around it, build up the fortress so nobody can get to it, 
you're the only person that's benefiting, and I'm using benefit in a really loose way. But when you give money, three people benefit. Three people are blessed. God is blessed, you are blessed, and recipients are blessed. So there's, there's great things to be cheerful about in giving. Now, let me ask, answer this last question or kind of concern as it relates to cheerful giving. Imagine a person asking this question this morning. Okay, I'm, I, I walked in the room today and I'm not cheerful in giving. I, this, I'm not excited about this. I don't like this. There's nothing in me that's excited right now when I'm hearing all this. What, what should I do? Um, here's my response to that. Two, two responses. Number one, you should give anyway. And, and, okay, now listen to me. Just because you don't have the appropriate desire does not mean you can avoid doing the right thing, right? So if I were to come to you and say, you know what? I don't really like my wife right now. I'm going to go home and just kill everything. I'm, I'm just going to ruin everything. To, like, when I go home today, I'm doing it. I hope you would say, no, you're not. No, you're going to go home and you're going to love her. You're going to go do the right thing. Just because you don't have the right desire does not mean we can avoid doing the right thing. Okay, now here's the second part of this though. If that's you and you don't have the right desire, here's what, I, here's what you need to do secondly. After you give, you need to be praying this. You need to repent of, of not having the appropriate desire and you need to ask God to restore it. See, if we don't have the appropriate desire to the duty that God gives us, that is sin. Okay, we need to call that for what it is. That means it's got to be repented of. That we've got to turn from that and run to, to Jesus. Asking God to restore the right desire to your heart and my heart. Do you see how that works? That when we don't have the right desire, it doesn't mean we can avoid the duty. It means we need to repent of not having the right desire as we do the duty, asking God to give us the right desire. Okay, number nine. And we're about to land the plane here. Christian giving is logical. Number nine, Christian giving is logical. In light of the promises of God toward you, let me just explain logical. In light of the promises of God toward you, sacrificial, extravagant giving makes perfect sense. Okay, now pick it up in in chapter 9, verse 6 with me. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread uh, for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. If I were going to summarize the heart of what I think Paul's teaching here, here's how I would say it. That it is impossible to outgive God. <laughs> it's impossible to do that. You can't do it. I can't do it. We'll always find that God is more gracious to us than we are towards Him. We'll always find that. You cannot outgive God. Now, let me be careful here because um, if you were just to flip the TV on and listen to preaching, you're probably going to hear this passage and passages like this severely abused. So, so I, let me tell you what I'm not saying. I'm not sitting up here telling you, hey, if you put $100 in today, you know what's going to show up in your mailbox this week? About 1000 I'm not saying that. It makes me puke to think about people who say that. Like, I just had the gag reflex stimulated in me right then when I... It, it's terrible. It's ridiculous that people would teach that. Okay, but, but let me try to salvage something for you. 
It's not a good thing when you let crazy people sabotage what the Bible is actually teaching, right? And so I want to make sure we uphold what the Bible actually does say. Okay, so here, here's what it does say. Look at these promises here. Verse 6. You want, to, you want to sow sparingly? Here's what you can expect. A sparse harvest. You, you want to sow sparingly? You're going to reap sparingly. You want to sow bountifully? Here's what you can expect. A big harvest. You're going to reap bountifully. Okay, these are promises of God towards you. That you can't outgive him. If you're going to sow your seed in and you sow a lot, you can expect a lot from God. You can expect him to do things with that. And then he goes on. Look at verse 8. I love verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You know what he's saying there? That grace will actually abound to you. Like when you give and you think your life might, you might die right there when you write the check. He's saying, you're not going to die. Grace will abound to you. I'm actually sufficient. I can do, I will satisfy you. I'm okay. I'm enough for you. I'll make all grace abound to you. Look at verse 10. It says, he'll supply seed to the sower. In other words, the more you sow, I think you could say this, that that God's saying, I'm going to give you more so you can be even more generous. You give generously, and there is a way in which God's saying, I will help you be able to sow more generosity. Look at verse 11. You'll be enriched in every way for what? To be generous. I mean, these are all good promises of God that should unleash a lot of generosity in us, making extravagant generosity really logical in our mind. I want to read this verse to you in Mark that for me has been a, uh, an interesting thing. When we started studying through this series, this was one of the first things I came along with to just help recalibrate my heart to what God promises for people who are, who are sacrificially living for God. Okay, so this is Mark 10. It's actually marked wrong on the screen. It's Mark 10, 29 through 30. And Jesus says this. This is right after the parable of the, or the story of the rich young ruler. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands and with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. You know what God is essentially saying here? Any sacrifice you want to make, I'm going to give you a 10,000 time return on that sacrifice. So this, is why, this is why sacrificial living and giving is really logical. Like, because God's promising you this. You'll, at the end of the day, you won't even be able to say you sacrificed in light of how generous God has been toward you. You won't even be able to say you sacrificed anything. In, in light of his promises toward you, it won't feel like, even like a sacrifice. 10,000 times return on the investment. I, I laughed about this in the first hour that um, we, we've been in this series for two months now. And uh, for me, it's been about six months of studying through it. So if, it's, if it feels like it's been a long time for you, think about what it feels like for me six months into this, right? And do you know what just has consistently been exposed in my heart over and over and over again? where I would confessionally say, I believe that, Mark 10. But how practically I see that I really don't. Functionally, I don't believe it. That the way I deal with money and possessions is showing confessionally, like my lips, I say I believe it, but functionally, I don't. And it's just caused me over and over again to be reacquainted with one, repentance, 
and two, the great promises of God that he gives us because of the work of Jesus for us. Like this in Mark 10, like you sow generously and you're going to reap generously. Like I will enrich you in every way. Like my grace will really abound for you, Rodney, for you. Not just for, for another, but for me. It will abound for me. Okay, and last one, and, and we're done here. Christian giving is in response to God. This is going to be the most important thing I've said in eight, eight weeks of doing this set of sermons. Christian giving is in response to God. It's fueled by God. It's motivated by God. Let me show you the bookends of these two chapters. How the chapters start, eight and nine, what's in the middle of them, and how they end. Okay, so this is how these two chapters start. Chapter 8, verse 1 says this. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. Grace. Do you hear that? About the grace of God. We want you to know this. About the grace of God. It starts with grace. About the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Paul is saying, here's where generosity starts. It starts with grace. Grace is what fuels and motivates generosity. Like without the grace of God in Jesus, generosity is impossible. Generosity always starts with grace. I love how Randy Alcorn says it. Where the lightning of grace strikes, the thunder of generosity is sure to follow. Where the lightning of grace strikes, the thunder of generosity is sure to follow. Where grace strikes, generosity is produced. See, maybe one of the ways that you can, you can determine your internal grasp of the gospel, how much your heart really gets this thing, your, your internal grasp of the gospel, one of the ways that you can give evidence for how much you grasp that is in the outward working of generosity in your life. Cheerful, sacrificial generosity. Your internal grasp of the gospel is shown by your outward expression of generosity. Grace produces generosity. And then this is what the, uh, the passage is, is kind of centered on. Look at 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. If you want to know the form, the content, the shape of God's grace toward you and I that leads to generosity, the shape of that grace is Jesus. That, that he left the riches of heaven for the rags of a carpentry shop. That this is Jesus. This is God's generosity towards you. That he has given his son to you. Now, now think about this. This is what separates the God of the Bible from every so-called God that people worship on the planet. This is the thing that separates it. Every other so-called God is a taker. The God of the Bible is a giver. Amen? Okay, now think about this. He, he doesn't just give, he gives sacrificially. This isn't just from the leftovers from God. This is from his best. He, he gave his one and only son, Jesus, right? He gave sacrificially. He gave deliberately, didn't he? It was well thought out and planned. He knew exactly what his sacrifice was going to accomplish, the redemption of many people like you and I. And, and he gave cheerfully. In one of the most ironic passages in the Bible, Isaiah 53, 10, it says that the, the Lord was pleased, cheer, like cheerful, pleased to crush him. And do you know why the Lord was pleased to crush his son, Jesus? 
It's because in crushing Jesus, he knew that he would never have to crush you or I. See, this is God's generosity toward you. And and then this is how this passage ends. These two chapters end. Look at chapter 9, verse 15. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Thanks be to God for this inexpressible grace. Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift, namely Jesus. Thanks be to God for that. He's that valuable. He's an inexpressible gift. See, generosity flows from a heart that views Jesus as an inexpressible gift. I, I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, if you want to know if Jesus is precious to you, here's how you can tell. This is how you know if Jesus is precious. If he's an inexpressible gift, everything else in your life becomes expendable. That's how you know. See, when he becomes this sort of an inexpressible gift, inexpressible generosity and grace from God towards you, when he becomes that sort of inexpressible gift, everything else in your life is expendable. Your name is expendable. Your reputation is expendable. Your money is expendable. Your house is expendable. All of your wants in life, they're all expendable because God is supremely valuable. Okay, I'm going to finish with a quote and I'm going to wait until the end to tell you who wrote it. The quote goes like this. It'll be up on the screen for you. A couple of years ago, I found out what you can't take it with you really means. I found out while I was lying in a ditch at the side of a country road covered with mud and blood and with the tibia of my right leg poking out the side of my jeans like a branch of a tree taken down in a thunderstorm. I had a MasterCard in my wallet, but when you're lying in a ditch with a broken glass in your hair, no one accepts MasterCard. We came in naked and broke, and we may be dressed when we go out, but we're just as broke. Warren Buffett, going to go out broke. Bill Gates, going out broke. Tom Hanks, going out broke. Not a crying dime. All the money you earn, all the stocks you buy, all the funds you trade, all of that is mostly smoke and mirrors. It's still going to be a quarter past getting late, whether you tell the time on a Timex or a Rolex. So I want you to consider making your life one long gift to others. And why not? All you have is on loan anyway. All that lasts is what you pass on. This needy world is not a pretty picture, but we have the power to help, the power to change that. And why should we refuse? Because we're going to take it with us, please. Giving isn't about the receiver or the gift, but the giver. It's for the giver. One doesn't open one's wallet to improve the world, although it's nice when that happens. One does it to improve oneself. A life of giving, not just money, but time and spirit, it repays. It helps us remember that we may be going out broke, but right now we're doing okay. Right now we have the power to do great good for others and for ourselves. As I ask you to begin giving, and to, so I ask you to begin giving and to, and to continue as you begin. I think you'll find that in the end that you got far more than you ever had and did far more good than you ever dreamed. And isn't it ironic that Stephen King, author, not a Christian, would write that? And so how much more should you and I as a Christian met with the extravagant grace of God have that posture towards the world? I mean, how much more should you and I met with the extravagant grace of God in the shape of Jesus? Perfect life in place of our imperfect one. An undeserved death in in place of our deserved death. Risen from the dead on the third day. 
How much more should we be open-handed toward every need in the world and toward God? Amen? I pray it would come true for us. Let's pray. We're going to finish up this morning by uh, taking communion and uh, singing together and giving you a second just to sit before God. And I'm praying that the Spirit would press upon you the things that were helpful and wipe away the things that were not this morning. And as we just prepare our heart for communion, a um, couple, couple of things about that. First of all, if you're not a Christian in the room, you've never stepped across the line of faith and you've never um, trusted in God. You ne- you've never put your faith in him, trusted and treasured him, pushed all your chips and surrendered your life to him. Can, can I just encourage you, before you take communion today, this is kind of a family thing. It's for Christians. So before you take communion, can I just encourage you to do this? Take Jesus, take Christ. He stands ready and willing to save you today, to redeem you. And for those that are Christians in the room, um, communion is for those who are right with God. And so that means we probably need to do some serious business before God and making sure our heart is right, especially in light of what we're studying right now in generosity and giving, cheerfulness, sacrificial. And here it might be the most productive thing you could do over the next 10, 15 minutes is get on your knees before God and cry out to him, confessing and repenting of a lack of desire and asking him to restore the right desire for this duty. And essentially communion is ultimately a great celebration, isn't it? That that here's what we get to celebrate as we dip the bread into the juice and eat it. We get to celebrate God's great generosity toward us. That, That he crushed Jesus' body on the cross, spilled his blood on the cross so your body would not have to be crushed and your blood would not have to be spilled. That that there is full payment for sin and God has met that in Jesus. That's the generosity of God towards you. And so God, I pray that you would bring that to life for us. God, that you would help our hearts feel and taste and know that generosity. And God, it would produce in us great generosity towards you and the world. So God, will you help us in that? Will you meet us with that sort of grace today? Will you meet us there? It's in your good name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.